Father, we thank you for this morning and for your goodness to us all the ways you've already spoken to our heart about what Jesus has done for us. And God, we give you our lives, and just as this song sings, we know that you will hold us fast, Lord, that we are made clean in Christ and stand holy before you forever, God. Lord, let us let that light up our hearts to worship you, God, with all that we are. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, church, and uh, welcome to Risen, Risen Life. You know, I love the snow. I hope you guys do too. But I always think it's cool when it snows and it rains. Back in Genesis 8:22, God promised to Noah that as long as the earth is around, there'll be summer and winter and seed time and harvest and cold and hot. And we got that today. We see God's hand to continue to sustain us and bring us the water that we need here. And so let's be thankful that God brings these seasons to us year by year by year. This Sunday we're going to continue in the book of Colossians, uh, looking at Christ and how Paul magnifies Christ in this book. One of the best books to learn about who Jesus is and how we should respond to him over our lives. So this morning we're going to look at Colossians 2, 16 through 23, and I'd encourage you to grab your Bible, open your phone, look on version, grab a Bible under the pew, whatever, whatever suits you. But let's turn to Colossians and look at what God has to say to us this morning. And today we're going to work at this question, how do we have a vibrant faith? Paul, Paul's going to tell us about this. How do we have a faith that is solid and settled, that's growing, and that's sin-defeating? Okay, I think that's a question we all ask. You know, the, the majority of the world wants to find the right way to relate to God and we believe as believers in Jesus that, that God has revealed that to us in His Son, that is through Christ that we get to know God, and yet we want to find a faith that's steady and solid in changing times, growing and sin-defeating. And the way we get that is through our hearts being transformed. And there's lots of voices on there on how to do this, right? I mean, there's always a new Christian book, a new thing, and maybe you get kind of caught up in the... There are all these procedures and methods, and you try them out, and you go, man, I just can't follow through with this. I don't have the discipline, and you kind of feel like a failure, right? I, I can remember uh, many years ago, I was, I was um, kind of interning at a church, and they were saying, if you really want to be a solid Christian, and you want to be a part of our leadership team, you got to get up at 4.30 in the morning and pray with us for two hours. I just said, I can't do it. <laughs> My soul will not let me see that time in the morning. I guess I'm out. Right? And on the other end of the spectrum, lots of times we, we look for the ecstatic experiences in our Christian walk, these crazy spiritual moments, these mountaintop things that we think will spur us on, and yet we know that after the mountaintop, what comes next? The valley. Right? And those things can let us down, and we wonder, where is God? Was he even there in the other things? Was that even a valid experience? And so we often get confused about what we should actually do and what leads us to this vibrant faith. How are we going to have a steady and growing and sin-defeating faith? And Paul's answer to us this morning is that to have this steady and growing and sin-defeating faith, 
we must hold fast to Christ. That's his answer. Get our mind and our hearts stuck on Jesus, what he has done for us, the love and the grace we experience in him. Never get over what God has done for us through Christ. Stick to the basics of the gospel. Start your Christian walk with the gospel. Stick to it every day as we need to find new grace and hope in the gospel for the future. That's Paul's answer. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't move off the gospel. And then we will have a steady, growing, and sin-defeating faith. And so Paul is going to warn us of three ways that we often get off track of focusing on Jesus in this passage this morning. He's going to first tell us we can get off track when we listen to the voice of condemnation. Okay, we're going to look at that. Instead, we need to listen to the voice of Jesus. Secondly, he'll say we can get off track when we look for something more than the gospel. Okay, again, looking for power elsewhere. Instead, he says, hold fast to Jesus. Or attempting to change our heart with the tools of the culture. And he says, look it. Look to Jesus to transform your heart. So let's look at this voice of condemnation here that he first talks about. Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, anytime there's a therefore in your Bible, what do you say? What's it there for, right? And so we go back and look at what's he been talking about. Colossians 2, 8 through 15 is kind of what he's been talking about, and I think in particular, verses 13 and 15, where he reviews the gospel with us. He says, look it, you are, you are dead and lost in your sins. You are trapped in your sins. And then yet, God made you alive through Christ, and you, believing, were baptized into his name. And then it says, because of Christ's death on the cross, he forgave all your sins. And the important verse here is 2.14. He says, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. Hallelujah, right? Everything canceled, nothing before God. It's all been taken care of. And then he goes on to say, God disarmed all rulers and authorities and triumphed over them. That's God's offer to us in Christ. That you can stand before him holy and forgiven because of what Jesus did in your place. And if you don't know him this morning, I would encourage you to make him your Lord and experience his love and grace through what he has done for us. But that's why he can then say in Colossians right here, Colossians 2.16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or festivals or Sabbath. And here he's specifically making reference to Old Testament laws and the laws that the Jews added to it. And there were some people insisting that to be truly saved Colossians, that you must not only follow Jesus, but obey the Old Testament law. And I think it's good to clarify here. We hear that word judgment, and we often, our culture sends us right out the door on, on a, a flight of fancy. We want to live how we want to live, of knowing no one speaking into our, our lives. We say, don't judge me. That's where our minds go. But that's not what Paul's saying here, actually. Paul's saying, he's saying, Christians, you have already been judged. Your salvation is sure, so don't make anyone tell you that you need to add to what Jesus has done. 
okay? What he's not saying is that Christians can't evaluate each other and say, you know, we ought to work on our holiness here. (laughs) But it's when we evaluate our salvation before God that he's getting after. And so here, these people are saying to the Colossians, Jesus isn't good enough. It's Jesus plus some works of your own that make us right with God. If you're not keeping the law, if you're not observing the festivals and the Sabbaths, then your salvation's in question. Outside voices judging the Colossians as not worthy of God's salvation because they're not keeping the law. But Paul's saying, get this, God's already held court. (laughs) He's already had you up in the courtroom. He's just said that in Jesus, your debts are forgiven. In God's courtroom, you've been acquitted of everything. That's why Paul can tell us in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen, if you are in Jesus, you've been set free from your sins. There's no more judgment for you. God will forever see you as holy and perfect and forgiven. All debts put aside. You are forgiven. And this has been through the grace, through faith in Christ. There is nothing you can do to make yourself more or less acceptable to God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, one of my favorite verses. In fact, one of the first verses I memorized in the Bible. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. And so we have been forgiven. And I want to say this. It's easy for us to hear those accusatory voices around us, right? If you're like me, you probably sinned one more time in the same stupid way this week. Mine was again last night, right? And you hear those accusatory voices, you're stupid. How could you have done that? God doesn't love you when you act like that. How could you even call yourself a Christian? This is what Satan likes to do to us. He likes to make a new judgment about us, declaring us guilty. And we are guilty of sin, but God has nailed it to the cross. In fact, Colossians 2.15, we heard last week, Jesus took the unicorn rainbow squirt guns away from Satan. Right? His judgment doesn't stand. He's been disarmed. He wants to make a new judgment against you, but God's judgment is that you are free. And when we're in those down places, it's easy for us to listen to those voices that say, we need to do more things to be justified in God's eyes. You need to do more things to make God love you. And so we set up a law for ourselves, or we grab one from somebody else. It's the natural bend of the human heart to set up a religious law to make ourselves acceptable to God. You can look all across the board of religion and there's all sorts of things that will tell you what you need to do to be acceptable to God. But when we do that, we've moved off of Jesus. We've lost our focus. And this type of condemnation will steal our faith. And so God has held court and he has acquitted us of all the charges against us if we are in Christ. 
Now, Paul says something really cool here about the Old Testament, so I have to point it out to you. Uh, I love the Old Testament. Here in Colossians 2.17, he tells us about how we should think about these regulations in the Old Testament and really, I think, how to interpret the Old Testament itself. He says, look at these things, these Old Testament laws, they're, they're a shadow of the thing to come, and the thing to come was Jesus. And so, in practical terms, he's saying this Old Testament law is lesser than Jesus, not unimportant because it's pointing us to Jesus. And so, in practical terms, all the people and the events and the institutions of the Old Testament should point us to Jesus. We should look for what is coming. What is it showing us about Jesus that is coming? And if we get stuck on the shadow, then we miss the true form. You know, in the Exodus, the Jews ate manna from heaven, but that was a shadow of Jesus coming down from heaven as the true bread of life, right? Where God provided water from a rock to satisfy the thirst in the desert, it was meant to point forward to Jesus as true living water. The Sabbath was given as a law for people to rest and honor God and was meant to point forward to the true Sabbath rest that Hebrews tells us is found in Jesus. That in Christ we rest from all of our works to make ourselves acceptable because Jesus did the work. And so there's something to be learned about Christ in each and every passage of the Old Testament. All the people, the events, the institutions, a shadow of the thing to come, which was Christ, all pointing towards him. And so Paul doesn't want us to get sidetracked from a steady, growing, and sin-defeating faith by these other voices that want to condemn us and say we need to do more to be saved. He says, Jesus has held court and you are forgiven. Your debts have been set aside. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Listen to his voice and what he has said over you. And we can think of that as stopping short of the grace of God, right? We, we almost have experienced the grace of God, but we're doing things to make ourselves acceptable. But now Paul's going to look at going beyond the gospel, kind of just jumping right over what Jesus did and looking for something else. Look at what he says here in Colossians 2, 18 and 19. He says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Now the Greek word there in 2.18 about um, being disqualified, it means to cheat, to disqualify, to condemn or rob of a prize. I think of probably a better translation shows up in the New American Standard Bible when it says, let no one defraud you of your prize, okay? So in other words, let no one get you sidetracked from the real prize, which is Christ, and get off on some other spiritual thing, right? Some other way that we think we might approach God, some ecstatic experience, the worship of angels, or asceticism in our own life that somehow we'd reach some nirvana, going on about visions and they're trusting in those. Don't get sidetracked by these things, but focus on Jesus. Jesus is the prize we're looking for. And 
Um, and then Colossians 2.19, he'll tell us the answer is to hold fast to Christ. You know, and as humans, we, we have a, fascina- a fascination with the spiritual, right? And, and I'll prove this to you. There's a reason we love Harry Potter. Any kids in here like Harry Potter? I know my kids do. Some of this is now for teenagers and college students because they grew up on Harry Potter. But we love Harry Potter. Why do we like Harry Potter? He's magic. We want something more than what we see. That's a natural human desire. We want the spiritual world that God created us to be in. In fact, I've you know, philosophers have like the cosmological argument, the teleological, ontological for why God exists. I have the Harry Potter argument. You want something more than what you see, okay? There's a reason why our state loves Halloween and scary movies. We intuitively know there's a spiritual world out there, and we want to connect with it on our own terms. In fact, I watched this travel show on PBS. It's insanely boring, but the guy travels around, and he loves to participate in whatever spiritual thing is going on in these different places. He doesn't necessarily want the God that it's portraying, but he wants the experience because the experience feels powerful and otherworldly, right? We intuitively want this spirituality. Most religions are looking for these ecstatic experiences that bring us to nirvana, and as Christians, we kind of look for the same. We take this from our culture and what God has put in us. But Paul is saying, don't move past the gospel for something more in these kinds of experiences. And we, I think we see this all too often in our Christian world. We have that really great moment, and then we kind of get let down after that moment, right? And it leads us even to a crisis of faith. Sometimes Here Paul's specifically calling out visions that people have, and they're putting more trust in that than who Jesus is and what God has said. And Paul says, that comes from your own lustful heart. (laughs) You're just portraying what you want out of your heart and wanting it to be true. And so we have to be careful. You know, I think back a couple years ago, there was a rash of books like uh, Heaven is for Real. Uh, I don't want to step on anyone's toes here, but... Heaven is for real, about this experience of going to heaven. And then there was two minutes in heaven to be bettered by the book of five minutes in heaven to be bettered by the book of 40 seconds before the gate and three minutes in the throne room and four minutes on the bus home, right? (laughs) This is what we do. Don't know if these things happened, but the problem is we often end up clinging to these stories more than we do what God has said to us. In fact, I remember back some people saying of these various books, now I know that heaven is for real because there was this little boy that went to heaven and he came back. Sound funny to you? That's what Jesus did. He came from heaven and then he went back and he said, I know how to get there. Follow me. I don't need the visions to tell me what God has already said to me. And Paul is saying, don't trust in these, stay focused on Jesus and what he has said. And I think there's a resurgence of spiritual interest and experiences in our city and around the world and our communities. And we want to have those, right? Like, I want the Spirit of God to be vibrant in this place. And how we should pray for God to move, to heal, to do miracles, to do amazing things. And we will relish when he does. 
we need to be cautious also that we don't put more faith in the dream we had than what God has told us in his word. And that's what Paul is getting at. It can be exciting to see the Holy Spirit move and feel very immediate and specific. But Paul warns that some of these visions may come out of our own lustful desires and not God. I had a friend many, many years ago who um, uh, had a dream, he thought, that God was saying that he should buy this piece of property and he was going to have this Christian camp at this certain place on the lake and he began to pursue this and it was no after no after no after no, right? And at the end of the day, he started going, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. He told me this and it didn't come true. Well, could it have been that you just wanted to live by the lake? This is what Paul is getting at. And so we have to submit our visions and the things that we want to experience to God's word and hold them loosely to see what God does and stay focused on what Jesus has said and what he has accomplished. This is how we have a solid and steady faith that grows. Now Paul in 2.19 gives us the answer to our question. How do we have this steady, growing, and sin-defeating faith? He states in the negative, these are, what, these are what the people are not doing, but I'm going to read it to you in the positive instruction for us. In contrast to the voices of the judges that are not doing this, he calls us to do this. He says, look, hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together in through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Hold fast to Jesus. I think this answer bugs us sometimes. We want it to be more. I, I want some more instructions. Right? I want, I want the more experiences. I want something more. But listen, the gospel's simple. It's easy. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, and then 27 through 30 talk about this. It talks about the, the simplicity of the gospel. It says, look, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It means it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What does he say right there? Steady, fast faith, growing faith, sin-defeating faith in Jesus. Holding fast to Jesus is where we find this. You know, we just sung this song, which I love, He Will Hold Me Fast. Part of the mystery of the gospel is that even though Paul's calling us to hold on to Jesus. Who's really doing the holding here? Jesus is, right? We can hold on kind of like a baby in his mother's arms, but mom's got the baby, right? That's how Jesus holds on to us, and we rest in that and are not moved off the gospel. So what does it look like to, to have this kind of faith? How do we hold on to Jesus? Just some easy practical things. First thing is we confess him as Lord. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess Jesus with your mouth as Lord and believe in your heart that he raised from the grave, you will be saved. 
In fact, that's really the primary and only thing you need to do to hold on to Jesus is make him your Lord. Jesus does all the rest. This is why with our discipleship wheel, we got Jesus right at the center because that's where the Christian faith starts and ends. All of it flows through that. Jesus has to be at the center of your heart and everything that goes on in your life. That's holding fast to Jesus. And then we return to the gospel daily. Right? I am loved. I'm going to sound like the smally guy in Saturday Night Live. I am loved. I am forgiven. He cares for me. He has a purpose for me every day. That's how we hold on to Jesus. God, I need to experience your grace and forgiveness one more time today, and I know you said you will do it, and so I want it today, Lord. Forgive me again for the sins I have committed, knowing that you have already said I am completely forgiven. And then we hear from him daily. We see this on our discipleship wheel, engaging with him in word in prayer, hearing from him in his word and responding to him in prayer. We keep open communication with God. And I think the other and the last thing we might say about that is we connect to his body. Notice Paul in this passage all through Colossians up to this point. He's described Jesus as the head of the body. And even here he's describing how they're connected and in their connection they're growing. Colossians 1.18 he says, He is the head of the body, the church. Church is meant to be a group of people claiming Christ and growing together. We are meant to be a society of people that are holding fast to Jesus individually, and together we're holding fast to Jesus. And I believe Paul's telling us here in 2.19, you won't grow as a Christian unless you're connected to the church. Major part of having that steady, growing, and sin-defeating faith is being connected to the body, as he said, Hold fast to the head as all the ligaments and joints are all connected together and God gives it the growth. Ask your kids, kids, what will happen if your arm is not connected to your body? Will it grow bigger or smaller? Smaller, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to wither and fall off. That's what happens to us when we're not connected to the body but it's connected to the head, which is Christ. Now, Apart from the church, we'll make our own rules. We'll try to experience heart change on our own. And Paul will show us why this won't ultimately defeat sin. Let's look at our last thing here. Verses 20 through 23. Attempting to make heart change with the tools of our culture. Verse 20 says this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that's where we go, right? When most people think of religion, they think, of a list of do's and don'ts, right? I shouldn't do this, I should do that. That the general purpose of religion is if I follow these rules, God will be happy with me and somehow my heart will not want these things anymore. The problem is, that doesn't work, right? Rules don't change the human heart. Only God's grace does. 
Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. As we experience God's love and His grace towards us, it changes our heart. And we've been learning this in our parenting class. It's only God that can change the heart. And so you can set up all the rules you want for your kids, but that won't change their heart, right? They may learn to be obedient so they don't face your wrath, but it doesn't change their heart, their desires of their heart. Same applies to governments and politics. You can set up all the laws you want, but it doesn't change the heart of the people, their attitudes. And so we attempt to inflict on ourselves all sorts of rules and laws, and here he's saying severity to the body to try to live in the ways that we think we need to do to find God. I remember hearing a testimony of a guy that had been involved in Buddhism for many years, and he said, I got up at three in the morning, and I did meditation for an hour, and I fasted from these things, and I would do all of this and that and the other, and I did this for 15 and 20 years, and I got to the end of it, and I said, this is useless. It hasn't changed one thing about me. And then he found Jesus. Talking to an unsaved friend about Jesus in the climbing gym just the other day. And he said, first question, talking about Jesus. What are the rules of your church about marijuana? This is where we go, right? We think about rules. I said, well, let's step out of the church for a second. First, it's illegal in Utah. But... For Christians, it's not about following rules to make God happy with me, but it's about having a heart that learns to grow and desire His things. Question should be, why does my heart want to use marijuana? Not, is it right or wrong? And we can only have a heart that desires God's things as He transforms our heart, and that happens when we make Jesus our Lord. You know, Ephesians 5.18, we'll run on the marijuana train here for just a second, is actually speaking of alcohol, and it says, well, you shouldn't drink to be drunk, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So it's not as much that we shouldn't use or abuse drugs and alcohol because God said so, though that would be enough, but rather that we are created to desire and experience something far better, and he's saying, that's being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, looking forward to the new covenant in Christ's blood, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, talks about this all this way. It says, God, after cleansing us from our sins, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, when God changes our hearts to desire better things, we don't want those things anymore. In fact, as a believer who's tasted the better filling of the Holy Spirit, you can see why it would be sinful to be intoxicated or out of our minds with drugs because those spaces of our minds and our hearts are meant to be indwelt by the Spirit. And when we engage with those other things, God is out of the picture. We've exchanged the creation, the creator for the creation, the Romans 1, making idols of the things that we see around us and looking to those to satisfy us 
instead of other things of God. And the rules we make for ourselves will never change our heart to seek God. It takes God doing a work in us. In fact, Matthew 15, 11 and 17 says this, in, in concert with what Paul's been saying, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, this is Jesus talking, but what comes out of his mouth. Whatever goes in the mouth passes in the stomach, and then there it's expelled. That's Jesus making a poop joke, by the way. But what comes out of our mouth is what comes out of our heart. Now, I need to repent of what I just said, probably. As well as the actions of our body, they, de- they betray what's actually in our heart. And it's the desires of our heart that lead us to sin, and rules don't change the desire of your heart. In fact, the Bible says they actually inflame them to want to do those things more. It's part of the purpose of the law, actually. James 1, 14 and 15 describes this for us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, meaning coming out of our heart. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Classic religious mindset that we can do things, we can make rules for ourselves that change our heart and make us happy in God's eyes. But we can't change our heart. Paul says in Colossians 2.23, he says, These rules have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of our flesh. There is a good place for rules. I'll give you one good place where we can use them. We accept Christ in our heart and he's transforming our lives and maybe he's shown you sin in your life that you need to change. Rules can be a good, I like to talk about it like this, a temporary fence around a construction site. Right? Rules won't change your heart. You've got to do a lot of hard work to change your heart and the desire for sin. But sometimes rules are a good temporary construction site until God and you have done that heart work. And then you know what you do? You take down the fence because your heart has changed. And so to defeat sin in our lives, we need real-life transformation of our hearts that Ezekiel is looking forward to. Paul has already called it the circumcision of our heart in Colossians 2.11. And only God can do that through Christ. To truly defeat sin, our hearts need to be captured by something greater, a greater desire than the desire of our heart to sin. And Paul is saying that greater desire is found in Jesus. And when you hold fast to him, he will keep changing your heart. And you will see that he is far better than anything out there. In fact, Paul talks about this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. I'm no longer my own because I've found something far better to satisfy my heart. And band, you can come on up. You know, I've been a believer in Jesus for 41 years. That sounds like a long time. And I can say that God has always satisfied the desires of my heart. I've always found him to be better than the things I can find in the world. And I continue to do so. He keeps showing me 
that sin, Jared, is not as good as what I can give you and who I am. In Christ, I've found real love and experienced the real love of God. I've found the grace of God towards me as a broken sinner in my sin. I've found purpose for my life. I've been provided for, and I've experienced God's blessing of his presence with his spirit that walks with me. You can't find anything that good out there. And God continually just shows me, I am so much better than all of these things. And God gives us great joy when we walk with him. We experience the love and grace of God through the gospel. Our hearts are changed. And that's the question we started with. How are we going to have a a vibrant faith, a, a steady faith that sees itself through the trials, one that's growing, one that's defeating sin? And Paul says, look, stay stuck on Jesus. Don't get over God's love for you in the gospel. Don't get over what Jesus has said because your sins are nailed to the cross. You're forgiven. Don't get over his grace. Don't get over the fact that he says, I will provide for you and take care of you and I will walk with you. Don't get over Jesus. He says it's about holding fast to Jesus and experience more of his love and more of his grace more deeply. And our sin starts to fall away because that is far better. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Maybe you've gotten a little sidetracked from Jesus over the last couple of years. God says, come back, right? Your faith's been hurt, come back. See that I'm better. Maybe you're hearing the gospel for the first time today, and God's saying, come to me, I'm Lord. Come and follow me and taste and see that I'm better. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, we'd love to tell you what it means to become a Christian by what the Bible says. Please come talk to Pastor Kevin or one of us. But as we come to a time of response, let's ask God to forgive us where we've gotten sidetracked from the gospel, and let's ask him to show us how he is so much better. And if you don't know him, ask him to be your Lord for the first time. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, God. Thank you for your word that is able to pierce our hearts and our soul. God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, help us never to get over the gospel. Help us to experience your love, your grace day by day. And God, help us to see that you are so much better than anything that the world has to offer. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.